Luke chapter 20, we're going to look at verses 27 to 40. And the message is entitled, Marriage and the Resurrection. Jesus has been teaching all day in the temple. It is Tuesday, the last week of Passion Week. And he has been confronted, questioned constantly, in an attempt to catch him in his words to accuse him. Now the Sadducees take their turn attempting to prove Jesus wrong by asking a question about the relationship of a husband and wife in marriage to refute the resurrection here in verses 27 to 40. Let me read. Then some of the Sadducees who denied that there was a resurrection came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife, and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her as wife, and he died childless. Then the third took her, and in like manner the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die any more, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answer and says, Teacher, you have spoken well. But after that, they dare not question him anymore. Their attempt to prove Jesus wrong by asking this question about the relationship of a husband and wife in marriage to refute the resurrection is characterized by the following three things. First, the hypocritical question about marriage, verse 27 and 28. Secondly, the hypothetical case in marriage in verses 29 to 33. And thirdly, the historical truth about marriage, 34 through 40. He begins with the hypocritical question about marriage, 27 to 28. Notice the particular group in verse 27 that are confronting Jesus were the Sadducees. Then some of the Sadducees who denied that there is a resurrection came to him and asked him. The Sadducees, as you know, were one of the three groups mentioned in the New Testament. The Pharisees um, were the most prominent and means the uh, separatists. They were the religious rulers of Israel having originated from the great synagogue after the Babylonian captivity as we've seen. And they were one of the parties of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the Jews. And they accepted all the Old Testament books, even the oral tradition that they had just multiplied over in their legalism. They sought praise in outward observance, um, external rites, outward pieties of washing and fastings and praying on street corners and all, uh, putting an emphasis on good works on themselves, thinking they were self-righteous. Uh, in fact, um, their, their phrase, 
Pharisee is synonymous with hypocrisy. They believe in the existence of good and bad angels and a coming Messiah. It's just that they missed the Messiah. And they believe in the resurrection of the dead unto punishment and reward. But they were bitter enemies of enemy, of Jesus. They opposed him constantly. And Jesus rebuked them severely for their greed, ambition, and hypocrisy. Josephus, a historian, tells us that there were no more than 6,000 at any one time of these um, Pharisees. You also have the Herodians. The Herodians were um, a political party of the royal family of Herod the Great and his sons. And they were uh, strange bedfellows, uh, the Herodians and, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, in that they had a common hatred for Jesus. It is interesting how many times people can hate each other and be so opposed to each other, but if they can find a common enemy, they can unite together. Like the Muslim world, they've been living, killing each other for all their history. But now they've got another enemy. And they get done with that enemy, they'll come back to kill themselves, each other. It's interesting. No different. Now they ask Jesus if it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, hoping to entrap him. They, they did that earlier. The Herodians. But Jesus, of course, you know, anybody have a coin? <laughs> and you know the story. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, give to God what belongs to God. Then you have these Sadducees here. Uh, the name Sadducee means um, the righteous from the Hebrew word Sadak, which means just. And uh, they were descendants of Zadok, the priest of David, that replaced Ahithophel, if you remember. Some trace them to Zerubbabel. Um, and this is the second religious group that comprised the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court. The uh, Sadducees were a quasi-political religious group, very wealthy materialists, uh, having made the temple their main business venture and um, marking up the uh, sacrifice offerings, putting uh, money changers and taking great percentage and just merchandising the people. And the Sadducees denied the oral law of the Pharisees um, as God's revelation that is not authoritative or inspired. And they only accepted the writings of Moses, the first five books, Genesis to Deuteronomy. And, of course, they, um, they denied the resurrection. Um, they um, didn't believe that there was any such thing afterwards. So here in the opening verse of 27, who denied that there is a resurrection. They denied the resurrection of the body, the immortality of the soul. This is recorded in Matthew 22, 23, Mark 12, 18. And here again, it's consistent. Remember John the Baptist, when they came out to him as he was baptizing there in the wilderness, John called him brood of vipers, saying, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come in Matthew 3, 7? John the Baptist of the priestly family called them. He knew them. They controlled the priesthood. They were the high priests. John was of the priestly family. John should have been a priest, but God called him to be a prophet. He called these guys brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes. Wow, see, now John the Baptist wouldn't get a job in most churches here today in America. He would be unloving, judgmental, legalistic, certainly not PC. Wow. They were constantly um, in league with the Pharisees opposing Jesus. And yet they opposed each other in many different ways. 
Now, notice they deny the existence of spirits and angels also. That's another thing that we find out. In uh, Matthew 12, 38 through 40, and in um, Matthew 16, uh, 12, they, uh, they, the Pharisees came and, and, and they asked Jesus about uh, a sign. Give us a sign. And he says, no sign shall be given you except that what is spoken by the prophet Jonah. That as he spent three days and three nights in, in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. There's the core of the resurrection. He just nailed them. When Paul was brought before the Sanhedrin, you remember, uh, as he was arrested falsely there at the, at the temple that he had brought in Gentiles, um, he exposes the hypocrisy of the council. And you find this in Acts 23, um, 6 through 9. It says, um, But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. He nails him right there. <laughs> and when he has said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and, and, and the assembly was divided, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and no angels or spirits. But the Pharisees confessed both. Then there arose loud outcry, and the scribes and the Pharisees' parties arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. <laughs> Paul was good. He was part of the Sanhedrin too. Okay? So we know Paul had to be married to be part of the Sanhedrin. And he knew. Sadducees, they don't believe in angels, resurrection, spirits. Pharisees do. I'm going to split this thing right now. <laughs> wow. Notice verse 28. The particular question that Jesus was in the law of Moses. Saying, teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. The Sadducees put a good front before people. And there are always people like that. They're, they're intelligent, they're calm, and they're very informed. And they're able to come across like if, you know, they're, they're, they're just sincere in all this. But inside they have a volcano blowing. This is the mastery of sinfulness. This is them right here. They can't wait to disprove Jesus. They want to win this case. But they're just before the public. Got to watch their P's and Q's. They address Jesus with respect, calling him teacher in reference to the things of God. But I don't think they did it sincerely. I think they did it in mockery. The word at times is translated master. Jesus was constantly teaching the people, as you know, we've seen this all along, about sin and the need of repentance. You want a definition in a nutshell about the kingdom of God? The preaching of the gospel for repentance. For the forgiveness of sins. You move away from that. You move away from God. And the kingdom. You lose everything. It can't get any simpler than that. He taught about not following the example. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. The part of the law. The Sadducees were referring to. Was found in the book of Deuteronomy. In chapter 25. Verse 5 through 10. The law is called the liberate law of marriage. 
The law basically was a provision that the line of the deceased individual relative might be preserved. So if a man died without children, as we're going to see here, having no son, then his brother who wasn't married was to marry his surviving widow. And then the first son to be born would be regarded as the literal son of the dead brother to take up his line and lineage. This was a provision. Boaz is a good example. Remember that he told Ruth, Blessed you are, daughter, for you have not picked one of the younger men, but I, he was older, and he would do the duty of this liberate law. And, and he would have to take her and Naomi and the property and raise up seed unto her husband. Okay? Now there was a, a escape clause in this also. That if the man said, no way, I ain't marrying her. Then he would have to go before the elders. He would loosen his shoe, spit in his face. And it would be known the man whose shoe was loose. Now to us that doesn't mean anything. But in that culture, it was a great insult because you refused to take up that which was most uh, binding and necessary for the lineage. Shakespeare said, man, poor man, ignorant in that which he knows best. These um, Sadducees think they're so chic, so clever. They, they've thought this through. They're going to nail Jesus. They're going to trap him. They are just going to embarrass him in front of everybody. Some people say, if there's a God, why does he allow children to be born with deformities? He has to be cruel. But the world that we see is not the world that God intended. So it's wrong to blame God for the conditions of the world. If you believe the fall in Genesis, then the world makes perfect sense to you. But if you reject the record of the fall, then you have to invent an explanation for everything you see in the world at the contradiction of the evil. If you say man is good, what do you do with evil? Where did it come from? So you ignore it. The world, the world is um, really the result of the disobedience, rebellion against God by Adam. Romans 5.12, sin and death came through one man. Passed to all of us. Every one of us are sinners. We still have sin nature. We have a potential for good, but our intent is evil. The human race is a product of the fallen nature through Adam. Rebellious self-will until we repent. Until the gospel pierces our heart. That's why Paul the Apostle was so adamant about the gospel. Others ask, um, if God is all-powerful, why does he um, allow evil to exist in the world? He could just quench it. They say, if God is all-powerful, why does he allow evil to prevail over good people? They say if God is all-knowing, why doesn't he stop something before it happens? And you have heard all these rationales, and they're really straw men that are built to try to disprove God, but they don't hold any water. 
The answer is that God has given man a conscience and allowed him with his human free will to make a choice. And so God allows this free will and the fallen nature to run its course. Through conscience, each of us know right and wrong. If we don't pay attention to it and we callous our conscience, then it becomes useless. But that conscience that God gives to us should lead us to creation that everything around us couldn't have just happened. There has to be a designer. There has to be a creator. But if I callous my conscience, then I have to conclude something different than what my conscience tells me. So then comes human indoctrination. And it's used as a rationale. It's when I open my heart that God now recalibrates my conscience to the word of God. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God unto salvation. The Jew first entered the Gentile. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. He's quoting Habakkuk 2.4. The just shall live by faith. Still others will ask if God created us and gave us certain desires, especially our sex drive. Why does God call sex sin? They say, how can God create us as sexual beings and then tell us not to be sexually active? Sounds logical, rational. They say, if we love each other, really that's all that matters. The answer is that God created male and female to experience the most intimate experience through the commitment of marriage for the continuation of the human race, Genesis 2, 23 and 24, or 22 on down. For this reason shall a man leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, the two should become one flesh. Marriage. Without marriage, without a union of man and a woman, the human race becomes extinct. And by the way, every nation is under the recovery rate of population, except for the United States. Because of the lie of overpopulation for over 50, 60 years. It's been achieved through birth control, through abortion, through euthanasia, and everything else. We're the only nation. A hair above the recovery rate. You see, the hypocritical question about marriage was an attempt to entrap Jesus. And that's what all these arguments are. But you're to give an answer scripturally. Why as a Christian? Notice secondly comes the hypothetical case in marriage, 29 through 33. In 29 through 31, the Sadducees declared a tragic story of one family. The, man, the main characters uh, were a group of brothers. Uh, now there were seven brothers um, Families in those days depended on male children over females. When the birth of a child would come, they would all come with food and musical instruments. They're going to have a party. If a boy was born, they would have a feast. If a girl was born, they'd just pack up and go home. Now, to us, it seems offensive. And, and, but you've got to understand the worldview of those days and the culture. Uh, males uh, would pass on the family name and could work harder and provide. Males would marry and they would live in the father's house. They would enlarge the house, not diminish it, while the daughter 
would go to the other husband's house and diminish her father's house. Males would provide security for old age for the father and the mother. So they weren't idealists, they were realists <laughs> in the world they lived. We take it as an offense today because a woman's living all that. Get over it. It's crazy. We bring our Western problems to an Eastern book. The seven one day married, it says, but to the same woman due to death of each of them. Verse 20. I'm sorry, 29 here. Notice the first from 20 on down. The first brother married. His marriage was short-lived. And the first took a wife and died without children. So the woman was a young widow at this point, And she remained as part of the family. They didn't just kick her out. There had been a commitment made and the family is involved. The second brother um, fulfilled the liberate obligation also in 30. And the second took her as wife and he died childless. The woman must have been shocked at this point. The woman was still part of the family. The third brother also complied with the liberate obligation. Then the third took her, and he died childless. Now by this time, you would think that the family might be getting a little suspicious. Now we're not giving details. Maybe they should have checked the uh, bagels or the, um, something. But at the same time, it reveals how um, they honored God's word, if in fact this story is true, which I don't believe it is. They're setting Jesus up. Then the fourth to the seventh, in verse 31, submitted to this liberate law. And in like manner, the seven also, it says, and they left no children and died. Now, as I said, the story is a bit hard to believe, as a real account, the story fits more with the intent to embarrass and to entrap Jesus, as is very clearly indicated in this entire chapter by different groups. Nevertheless, Jesus will answer them according to their mistaken belief about the resurrection to correct their false teaching. Your responsibility and mine to those that bring us questions is to let them walk away knowing that they're wrong. Whether they believe it or not, that's not your problem. Today, in the church, people say, oh, let's not argue, let's just agree. That... No, 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 no. I need to let you know that you're wrong. You get to decide whether you believe you're wrong or not, but I'm to give you the absolute truth. I'm to correct your error. Whether you're a Christian or non-Christian. I'm not to do it in anger. I'm not to do it in a thinking I'm better than you. But I'm to do it in a loving manner. Notice the Sadducees declared the tragic end of the woman. Now 32 to 33. She came to the end of her life. Last of all, the woman died also. Now no, no specifics are given to us. Whether uh, of a relationship uh, with any of the seventh. But I would imagine at this time, maybe the family said, man, she's gone. <laughs> Seven. 
We're not told whether she was happy, content in life. We're not told how old she was. But if she married seven brothers, there must have been a good length of time here. We're simply told that she died also. Look at 33. The death of all seven brothers and the woman was used now to present their question to Jesus. The word therefore, as I've told you many times, is a concluding word. In view of these facts, due to these things that they have just stated, the question is about the resurrection. In the resurrection, whose wife does she become? And I can just see them with all arrogant pride as they're saying, looking around to the crowd, we have him. They're in for a surprise. They thought they had stumped and embarrassed Jesus publicly. They thought they had silenced Jesus like no one else had. Pharisees, Sadducees, lawyers, scribes all take their shot at Jesus. But we, we are the top ones. The rationale is given. Listen, for all seven had her as wife. Oh man, they think they have just sealed the deal. They stated this as their evidence that there could not be a resurrection. When she's raised, what do you do? Cut her up in seven pieces? Human logic, right? They believe they had proven Jesus the Pharisees wrong about the resurrection. So if we prove Jesus wrong, we also knock off the Pharisees at the same time. Two birds with one stone. They were serious. This is what they believed. But it didn't make it true or biblical. People are sincere in what they tell you. But it doesn't make it true or biblical. A.W. Tozer in his devotional, Renewed Day by Day, September 24, said the following. Listen carefully. Quote, I observe with pain amusement. How many water boys of the pulpit in their efforts to be prophets and are standing up straight and tall and speaking out boldly in favor of ideas that have been previously fed into their minds by the psychiatrists, sociologists, and novelists, and scientists, and the secular educators. He lived in the past century. A new decalogue has been adopted by the neo-Christian, which is an oxymoron. There's no new Christianity. But they call themselves Christians. Neo-Christians of our day. The first word of this Decalogue reads. Thou shall not disagree. And a new set of Beatitudes too. Which brings. Which begins. Blessed are they. That tolerate everything. For they shall not be made accountable for anything. Wow. The emergent church fits there. The majority of church today fits there. The belief in UFOs is presented by many to rationalize that alien beings were once on this earth and are responsible for many of the things to support then that that's why they don't believe in God. They believe in UFOs. Personal sightings are used as evidence of their belief 
and uh, also personal abductions through experimentation, so on and so forth, to substantiate their belief. But being unbelievers, they do not understand that Satan is the god of this world, and Satan and his demons can transform themselves into angels of light and deceive fallen man. Keeping them from believing the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the light of the gospel come upon them. Satan blinds them. He blinded you for a while. He blinded me for 23 years. The belief that people die and come back from the dead is used to rationalize that the Bible is not true. Again, personal testimonies are given um, of those who see a light and they feel all peace and tranquility. And, uh, you know, they just were just so in awe of it and uh, the supreme being. And, and either were even asked, do you want to go back? So they come back and give their testimony and say, and you know what? I'm not afraid of death. You don't have to worry. It's beautiful. What greater deception? Here's the problem. They're non-believers. They're giving a testimony that contradicts the Bible. Sinful man is under the wrath of God. John 3.36 Sinful man is unholy. God is the epitome of holiness. How can you give a testimony that you're before the holy God and that you're at peace and you've never repented? It's a contradiction to the Bible. Hebrews 9.27 that's appointed to every man, and after that, the judgment. Now, some Christians have given testimonies like that too. But you can't teach that as doctrine, you understand? It's the Scriptures. If you allow that, then the non-believer has as much credibility, and they're contradicting the Bible. And Christians have written books, I went to hell, this and that, a bunch of junk. Jesus brought Lazarus back. If God allowed you as a Christian to die on the table and come back, praise God. Thank Him. But don't go teach that as doctrine. You understand? Impossible. Satan deceives people as they hear these testimonies. Then what's the conclusion? Well, you don't have to repent. The Bible's wrong. Because I was tranquil. I was talking to the Supreme Being. He said, don't worry about it. You're cool, man. Hmm. The belief that man has um, evolved and is good, able to solve all the problems of life, is used to rationalize that we don't have to depend upon God or that He is the creator of man. They focus on the good deeds of some men and women throughout the existence of man while ignoring the greater amount of evil man has committed. You see, if you believe man is good, you have to ignore the majority of evidence that contradicts that. You have to wash it away with one big brush, which is dishonest. They point to the modern progress of advancement through technology and everything that's made life more comfortable and beneficial for man. 
while again, once again, ignoring the dishonesty, the destruction, the perversity, and the perpetual uh, um, evidence of this throughout man's history. You have to be dishonest. We have a potential for good, but our bent is towards evil. The only way you can explain this world, the fall. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. Good to merit salvation. You can never work your way to heaven. You repent. You're saved by grace through faith. Ephesians 2.8.9 That not of yourself is a gift of God. Through the work of Jesus Christ, His atonement. Now, the belief of reincarnation, the cycle of life, you know, many attempts to try to better yourself in life and climb up that ladder of to reach nirvana, like Buddha uh, said you could do it, though he never did it, uh, to escape some kind of judgment and, you know, because you don't believe in resurrection. You remember the Beatles, let it be. That's what they were talking about. Let it be. Let him alone. Don't mess with his life because he's on this cycle of journey of reincarnation. You'll mess him up. So you don't want to step on an ant because it might be your auntie. You don't want to eat a cockroach because it might be your daddy. You want to eat a cow, it might be your cousin. And rather than creation serving you and being for your benefit, you become in bondage to it, right? Wow. Every person has a birth date and a death date. Every person is responsible and accountable to God for what they have done in life. Every person will spend eternity separated from God or with God. People say, well, I don't, even want, I don't know if I want to live eternally. You don't have a choice. You're going to live eternally. All you can do is make your reservation where you want to spend it. When you're going to buy a house, the price depends upon location, location, location. When you're planning on spending eternity, the most important thing is location, location, location. Okay? You get to choose it. The deciding factor is if a person repents of their sin, acknowledging their sinfulness, that God may transform their hearts and change them from day to day, from glory to glory by the Holy Spirit of God. It's called repentance. Paul puts it this way, 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10. Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. You go out and you mess around, you get pregnant, young lady. And you're right in the middle of your schooling for your career. Now, you regret it. But you regret the consequences. Not that it was sin against God. Sin with someone else and sin against your own body. So you'll be back to it in a week, a month or a year again. Godly sorrow means that you recognize that sin is against God. And you ask Him forgiveness. And you ask Him to change your heart. 
And you don't go back to that again. We don't regret that we repented. I'm glad that I repented. Wow. The hypothetical case in marriage was presented to confirm that there could not be a resurrection as taught by Jesus. They think they have him. They think they have won the argument here. But the story is not over. Notice thirdly, the historical truth about marriage. And you'll know why I named it historical. Because it's history. His story. (laughs) From the beginning to the end. He's the authority on everything. Notice in 34 through 36, the revelation of Jesus about the relationship of marriage after death and the resurrection. Jesus declared that marriage is God's institution for the continuation of the human race. Listen to his words. And Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. God created Adam and Eve, male and female. God created them with the ability to reproduce after their kind. God knew about the fall and that some, through that effect, would genetically be affected and they would not be able to have children. You, I know people who have fallen under that category, but it's the rare exception. The majority of us, even though we are fallen, we can reproduce. Jesus declared that marriage is not part of the next life with God. Next. Listen. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age in the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. 35. Those counted worthy to attain this age are those who have repented of their sin in the name of Jesus Christ and born again, die physically, and will be in eternity with Jesus. Simple. Those who are with Jesus have no need to marry, for heaven does not need to be repopulated by natural births, but rather by supernatural births. (laughs) Okay? Then notice in 36, Jesus declared that death does not exist in heaven. Nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons, he nails them here, of the resurrection. Now as Jesus is saying these things, I can see them going from the proud, arrogant look, going to, trying to hide in the crowds. They cannot die anymore physically because they are Not in the physical body. Simple. When we die, our body goes to the grave. It will be raised, glorified. But it's not going to be what is planted into the ground. They cannot die anymore because death is defined biblically as separation from God. And they are present with God for all eternity. On the human side, first step, death. The spirit is free from this body. Okay? it, It leaves. And so, clinical um, definition is no more brain waves. There's physical death. But from the biblical perspective, death is separation from God for all eternity. Notice they are equal to the angels, spirit beings. 
meaning that they are part of the heavenly spiritual world with no need to reproduce physically. Doesn't mean we become angels. It doesn't mean that we become just like angels, but that the aspect that is, is equal here is that we become spirit beings. Angels are spirit beings. So there's the salvation, Hebrews 1.14. Now, this also doesn't mean that angels are sexless, as many people teach from this and a couple other passages. For every time angels appear, Old and New Testament... They always appear in the male gender, never female. Now, there's mythology and all different religious things that, 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 that teach about women angels. And in mythology and that, they're called succubus, and those are female angels. And they're not very nice. But biblically, it's only males that they appear, Okay? Completely. So it doesn't say they're sexless. Notice he says they are sons of God, sons of the resurrection. They made their decision while on earth to live for God and depend on Him until death. The Sadducees are becoming less visible at this point, probably. <laughs> Notice in 37, 38, the revelation of Moses about those who have died knowing God proved the resurrection. This will take all the rest of the air out of the Sadducees. Listen carefully. Jesus declared Moses believed in the resurrection of the dead. Oh, we only accept the five books of Moses. Oh, okay. Let's, let's use them then. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage, that the dead are raised. The dead are raised is the present tense, emphatic in the Greek. The Sadducees, remember, accepted only the books of Moses. Jesus is quoting Exodus 3, 1 through 6, the second book of Moses, which, by the way, Jesus says that Moses wrote it. <laughs> so much for the higher critics. Jesus confirmed Moses' belief in the resurrection when he called the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, for he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. The patriarchs were alive, not dead. Their bodies were in the tomb, but they were alive. The emphasis on the contrast, the God of the living not the dead. God's sons and daughters are alive, not dead, living with him. Mark it well in 38. Now at this point, Matthew and Mark help us out. As they tell us, Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine and Mark twelve twenty-four. This is always the case. This is always the problem with every and any human being. They fail to measure and to judge what they believe by the scriptures. They are not good Bereans, Acts 17, 11, who examined to find out if what they heard was so. 
The scriptures is the plumb line. Not the pastor, not the people, not the denomination, not the new movement, but the word of God. Wow. Then comes the revelation of the response by the scribes, the onseers. Some of the scribes were in the crowd along with the other groups, 39 and 40. The Sadducees don't even want to be there any longer. The scribes commended Jesus. Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. Man, you helped us out. You saved us. (laughs) Because if they could have disproved Jesus, they knock off the Pharisees at the same time. The rationalists were corrected in their mistaken theology. The rationalists were given the truth about life after death. The religious men and crowds were silenced. But after that, they dare not question him anymore. One by one, Jesus revealed the heart. One by one, Jesus revealed their error. Just like he did to you when you heard the gospel. Myself and many others. What's interesting is that none of the religious men of the world, regardless of how famous they were or how much they affected mankind, are the ultimate authority. All are still in the grave. It is Jesus Christ who has been risen from the grave, so he is the ultimate authority. Listen to me. If you are going to die, you want to make sure you talk to someone who's died and come back from the dead about what happens after death. If you're going to Mammoth, you don't want to talk to somebody who's gone only to Crystal Lake. Okay? And this is the failure of man's arrogance. Mormons believe they will repopulate their own planet with their wives if they are married with their special underwear garments and are true to the Church of Latter-day Saints. They're serious. It's tragic. But it's a complete contradiction to the words of Jesus to the Sadducees. There is no merits in heaven after death or in your own planet. Real simple. The Muslims believe um, if they're martyred for their faith, they will be in paradise with a thousand virgins. Ignoring that murderers shall not inherit the kingdom of God fantasizing in what they wish they could have here on earth, believing they'll have it in heaven. Yaza Arafat was shocked the minute he died. No virgins. Just torment. Wow. The institution of marriage is for the entire human race, by the way, not just for Christians. Marriage is to be the most fulfilling and rewarding, the union of a man and a woman, though difficult at times because we are sinners. 
but the most rewarding. In fact, Romans chapter 1, 24 to 32, Jesus, Paul there, speaks about how man has corrupted the natural creation of man and woman into homosexuality. And he finishes up saying that their judgment is due and fitting. And he speaks about those who are not uh, homosexual, but they approve of that lifestyle, and the judgment will fall upon them. This is interesting and most important because maybe 50 to 60 to 70 percent of Americans, though they're not homosexual and, 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 and don't live that lifestyle, um, I believe, and, and they approve of civil unions or a literal marriages as the Supreme Court is going to decide in June one way or the other, then judgment falls on you, whether you're Christian or not. You're approving of that. You can't just say, well, it doesn't matter to me if they're civil. No, it better matter to you. Your judgment, your answer better be biblical. It dishonors God. So if you think as a Christian, you can just say, well, I don't mind if they're civil union, they get a tax break. No, no, no. The Bible says no. When two men can give me a baby, I'll buy it. When two women can produce a baby, I'll buy it. Never happened. Take that down 50 years. No more people. Simple. Marriage is for the perpetuation of the human race, not for single people to go around and have sex and have babies out of wedlock. Marriage is for Christians and has the greatest potential for blessing if we will die daily to each other and to our flesh. Marriage dissolved by death on earth will not diminish our love or knowing each other in heaven. It just will be different. Not as husband and wife, but as brothers and sisters. And though it may be difficult for some and even sad to think that they're not going to be husband and wife and be in that relationship in heaven, you, you have to understand one thing. It's going to be better. Not because you won't be with them, though for some it will. <laughs> Let's face the facts. Okay? But better because you're going to be just like Jesus and we're not going to have sin nature and we are going to be corporately the bride of Christ. Simple. Well, am I going to know my wife? Do you think you're going to be dumber here than over there? Of course you're going to know your wife, but not as your wife. Am I going to know the baby that uh, died when he was only a month old? Yeah, you're going to know him. It's going to be different, but better. Paul put it this way, 2 Corinthians eleven two. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Wow. What a glorious day that's going to be. 
the historical truth about marriage here and eternity after the resurrection was the authority of Jesus. He's the ultimate authority, ladies and gentlemen. You can reject it, but you can't reject the consequences. You can disagree with God, and He gives you all the right to do so. But there's a payment. It's not pretty. This is the attempt by the Sadducees to prove Jesus wrong by asking the question about the relationship of a husband and wife in marriage to refute the resurrection. (laughs) The hypocritical question about marriage was an attempt to entrap Jesus. The hypothetical case in marriage was to confirm that there could not be a resurrection as taught by Jesus. And the historical truth about marriage here in eternity after the resurrection was by the authority of Jesus. Amazing. To the point clear and very succinct. Do you believe this? That's the question. It will make a difference where you spend eternity. Father, thank you for your grace and love, your goodness. Deal with our hearts. Father, we pray for those that are here that perhaps do not know you or over the internet. We pray, Lord, you would deal with their hearts and that they understand your love and grace, your desire to forgive and to transform. As you're praying, if you're here, you don't know Jesus Christ. And God is here to save you, to reveal to you your sinfulness, your need of salvation, your need of repentance, your need of a Savior, depending totally on the work of His, his Son as He died on the cross for you and was raised from the dead. That an actual payment was made and there is hope only in Christ Jesus, no one else. If you're over the internet, you can decide right where you're at right now. This is your prayer if you want to be born again and repent from your sins. Or if you're here, you can repeat it right where you sit. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord.